Welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. Giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bugs. Hey everyone, this is Season 5, Episode Number 3 of the Performance Nutrition Podcast. Today we're talking about coaching with the author of The Tough Stuff, Seven Hard Truths About Being a Head Coach, Cody Royal, the head coach of AFL Canada. Today, Cody and I will discuss some key elements of how pressure and the emotional toll impacts coaches, how coaching is not about you, but actually all about you, how ultimately you're trying to create your own identity within a team, how we need to rethink communication, and a whole lot more in this episode. So regardless if you're coaching clients, athletes, or patients, this episode highlights some really key areas to think about. This episode is sponsored by Athlete Evolution, performance nutrition education for strength coaches, nutritionists, trainers, athletes, and the like. Enrollment is open for our inaugural football performance nutrition course until April 2nd. So if you'd like to learn from elite NFL and NCAA experts, get VIP access to small group talks for the best practitioners and sports scientists in the world, earn CEUs with the NSCA, and of course get lifetime access, then you can sign up now and use the promo code FPN50 to save $50 off the cost of enrollment. We've got multiple NFL teams and elite NCAA programs on board, so if you'd like to connect with and learn from elite practitioners, you won't want to miss it. You can see the full details at athleteevolution.org. That's athleteevolution.org under the Courses tab. Awesome, let's do this. Season 5, episode number 3 with Mr. Cody Royal. Enjoy. Yeah, listen, I appreciate you taking the time today. How are things? They're going well. They're going well. Things are a little bit uh, dire here in downtown Toronto, but... Um, nice grey February, you know? Yeah, grey February and uh, cold and, yeah, got to get everyone else. Awesome, man. Listen, I'm really excited to dive into your new book, The Tough Stuff, Seven Hard Truths About Being a Head Coach. But before we do that, I mean, I'd love for you to give viewers and listeners a little bit more background on yourself and your uh, coaching career yes i'm an aussie rules coach which is is a funny thing to say the biggest pitch in (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh big field big uh cricket size field for those who haven't heard of aussie rules or afl uh you might be familiar with it if you follow the nfl a lot of our a lot of the punters uh come over they come from our sport probably the biggest well the biggest winter sport we'll call it in australia it's hard to explain in words. You would need to YouTube it to, to really get it. But um, it is an awesome game, though. I mean, it's uh, having had the pleasure of being over in Australia and going to a game in the Sydney, watching the Sydney Swans. I mean, for, for folks who aren't familiar, I mean, the size of the pitch, the, the speed, the athleticism. Although I did hear that it was to keep cricketers fit. It was the original. Is that, is that true? I mean, I think that that's a level of fitness that cricketers don't exactly need. With the, It's pretty impressive what the AFL athletes can achieve. Yeah, that that's the original story. Yeah, to keep the cricketers fit, and uh, kind of went from there and became a religion in Melbourne. I mean, uh, you know this—you've seen hockey in Canada, but um, there are very few sports, I think, globally that have that kind of religious element to them. 
that Aussie rules does in Melbourne in particular. Um, I'd say probably soccer in Brazil and, and probably uh, the UK, yeah. uh, hockey in Canada. Uh, it, it's kind of at that level of fanaticism. If you've ever, it, the, the, the thing that I, I want people to experience is 100,000 people at the Melbourne Cricket Ground watching a game of Aussie rules football. You've never seen anything like that in your life. And yeah, imagine um, the energy is something else. Yeah, so that's my world. And then, um, you know, so I came up through the, the elite junior development system, uh, didn't get drafted, and then kind of got spat out into coaching at about 23. So I'm a, quite a young coach for Aussie Rules because in our world, you can go back and play suburban level and, and actually make a little bit of money and kind of have a bit of a, a let's call it a semi-professional career Yeah. yeah. Um, whilst, whilst you're working a corporate job or being a tradie or whatever you, you do. So... And how did you um, yeah, know, pretty, if I jump in, how did you know that you wanted to get into coaching at that at that age? Was it uh, you just always knew, or what inspired that? No, I don't think I always knew. Uh, ironically, there was kind of a, a I fell out of love with playing the game, and coaching kind of made me fall back in love with it. Mm. And ironically, it was the thing that kind of crippled me as a player was I I didn't have an off switch. Like I, I couldn't find flow in the game. If, mm. I, if I was thinking too much, I couldn't really get into the game. And so ironically, that's a skill in coaching is the the analysis piece and almost kind of like bordering on over analysis. Yeah, and, sure. I, and I could, I was, so I was a smart player that crippled me as in, in my kind of career aspirations playing, but it was advantageous on the, the coaching side. So yeah, I was lucky enough to get into it really early and that sounds weird now. I'm 36 and I've been coaching for 13 years. Um, nice. uh, even, even coming over here and getting to work with uh, the national team, which is what I coach now, the men's Canadian national team. Um, you know, there's international tournaments every year. And so I get to work with, you know, elite athletes. A lot of them come out of youth sports um, in, in Canada and they don't, they don't have an avenue to play rugby or hockey or basketball or soccer after university and they find our sport and so i get to work with those guys and it's really cool awesome man well listen i mean i, I really uh it's been fascinating digging into your your new book and uh, you know this idea of seven hard truths about being a head coach i think you know people listening in even if you're not a, a coach per se if you're a practitioner if you're a nutritionist you're a strength coach you know the coaching aspect is such a big part of of making athletes better and you know even in a clinical setting I really like when you know you kick off the book with a great quote from England rugby uh, head coach Eddie Jones in the first chapter. And I'll read it out here for for listeners. Coaching is difficult. You're supposed to know everything and offer constant belief and hope to a huge number of mostly complex individuals. At the same time, everyone thinks they can do the job better than you. You're never short of someone telling you what you're doing wrong. Can you unpack that uh, quote for for uh, listeners? Yeah, so that's kind of the, the wrap-up of the first chapter, and the first chapter is called Everyone Thinks You're an Idiot, or the first hard truth, really, called mm -hmm. Everyone Thinks You're an Idiot. And um, when I started writing the book, it was actually a bit of a central theme to why I wanted to write about it is because there is this dynamic of, which is quite bizarre, in that you can have an entire career path uh, and you get to the top. So you're, you know, in, in the NBA, you're one of the 30 best people in the world at that time in your job. And 
mm. everyone thinks you're an idiot and everyone thinks that they can do the be- the, the job better than you. And uh, it's just this really bizarre dynamic that does exist in other professions, but I kind of want to point it out and and really emphasize the fact that that external pressure, you know, obviously impacts coaching it impacts your ability to coach it impacts you know it's not lost on it's not lost on coaches that people think this about them and that they you know that people suddenly dislike them because they brought their favorite player off at a key portion of the game um you know it it, people are well aware of it and you know it weighs on head coaches and and i yeah I, i couldn't find a better quote about it than what eddie had said in his book well, it's fascinating because you talk about, you know, assistant coaches and, you know, the skills that you have as an assistant coach, but how that in and of itself differs completely from even being a head coach. And if we talk about even the idea that everyone thinks they know better than you, I mean, even within a coaching staff, you know, you have competitive personalities and, and you know, when we talk psychology, the disagreeableness is this sort of the flip side of that sometimes. And so you've got potentially coaches on your coaching staff who think that you're, you know, they've got a better idea or could do it a certain way. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and how it's getting everybody on the same page or how to, you know, how does a head coach start to, to block out all that noise? Yeah, and I would expand it even further. I mean, some of the harshest critics that you'll have are actually in your own building. So again, going back to the idea of hard truths, we're often sold this idea that, you know, because we're uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs or because we're the Toronto Raptors or, you know, that everyone's pulling in the same direction, even from the staff. Mm. But in reality is, yeah, you have, uh, well, one, complex individuals. Then you have those competitive individuals that are trying to take the next step. Then you have other staff who think the same as everyone else. They think their idea is better or the right one and the coach made the wrong call or is just a buffoon or whatever. And so I really just wanted to point out that often some of your most severe critics can be in the building and be, you know, the the people that sit next to you on a day-to-day basis and think it becomes a little bit of an art in assembling, I think, the, the kind of artistry of building staffs and building internal groups within organizations is really going to start to come to the fore. If it hasn't already, uh, I actually think it, it has. You see good staffs win mm. now. And so, but it's just something that we don't really pay attention to all the dynamics between the staff and particularly how they're serving the, the head coach who's the ultimate decision maker. Yeah, 100%. And I mean, it makes me think about how in elite sport now we see players going from their playing career to a managerial career within years you know we see it a lot in in premiership football you know the likes of the Gerrards and the Lampards and the Rooney kind of jumping straight into this they obviously have tremendous experience as players and resumes and accolades and similarly in basketball Steve Nash has worked a little bit in Golden State but now he's the head coach over and these are obviously elite all-time talents but but what is it about just transitioning over to being a head coach that doesn't necessarily being the most talented player on the team or in the past if that doesn't always translate to being the best head coach does it yeah one of the quotes that i use in there from stephen gerrard kind of hits the nail on the head is that there's just something different in there this is one who's been a captain his whole life captain of liverpool captain of england you know, 300, 400, 500 games, 
So think about like even a team address and like addressing teammates. Mm. And then his quotes is the most nervous presentation I've ever had was when I had to address Glasgow Rangers for the first time. Which is saying something so, in and of itself, right? This is a guy who the greatest comeback in Champions League scores three goals in the second half or assists one. Like the level of accomplishments is off the charts. And then to your point, he's in a room, he's the head coach, he's addressing this team for the first time. And, and this is one of the most nerve wracking things that he's ever done. Yeah, that that's exactly it. And, and that's why I think that quote is just brilliantly simple because it just sums up that there's just something different. The, the eyeballs on you are just different now when you're the one in the spotlight. And yes, you're the one in the spotlight when you're the captain and you're England and all this sort of stuff. But then you move it over to the type of expectations that are on head coaches in particular, and uh, it changes again. And what's really interesting you know, the, the, the speed of change over the last kind of 20 years has really facilitated this in that, you know, the, the change in sporting environments where the head coach used to do basically everything. They would certainly do, you know, maybe they might have it, someone like yourself come in and consult and, and build some programs. But for the most part, like fitness and data and analysis and all these things, that was a coach's job. Like we forget that, that 20 years ago, Here's another example from the book. So when Tony Granado becomes head coach of the Colorado Avalanche, he takes mm -hmm. over the greatest team probably still ever assembled. Um, if you're a hockey fan, uh, yeah. you could you could probably make an argument. Um, sure. You know, Warren and Sackick and Forsberg and Foot and Hayduke and all these guys. Takes over after three months as an assistant coach. He becomes the head coach. They fire Bob Hartley. So he's got three three months of coaching experience, period. Yeah. At, but then only has one assistant coach. That's the only person on staff. So in the early 2000s, probably the greatest hockey team maybe ever assembled has one head coach and one assistant coach. And now you think of all the different departments that you know have all these PhDs in them now. You know, yeah. You've got performance, <laughs> you've got data, Army you've PhDs. got... PhDs. Right. And, and then the coach has to manage all of those departments. And so that's what I mean. The speed of change has really facilitated a lot of this on top of the fact that there's just this spotlight on you as the head coach and the ultimate decision maker is already imposing enough to itself. Now mm -hmm. the landscape has changed to the point where you've got all these PhDs rolling through your office 24-7, updating you on what you know the latest changes are and the players are doing. So, Yeah, a lot of demands on the coach. And one of the areas that I really enjoyed in, in your book is you, know, you talk about Dan Quinn, you know, the ex-head coach of the Atlanta Falcons, and that idea that words matter and that the head coach's words, you know, even back in the day, whether you play an amateur sport, you know, that moment you have with the coach where you have a one-to-one -one and it's that five or 10 or 15 minutes that for the player or for the performance staff or whoever, that's a really important five, 10 or 15 minutes from the head coach. But of course the head coach has that five, 10 minutes over and over and over again in the day. And it's, it's tiring, it's exhausting, but you know, that, that piece in the book that you talk about, you know, Quinn realizing that those are really important moments. And, you know, can you speak to that idea of the power of words and how, you know, those touch points are, are so important? Oh, I'll just say what a what an amazing uh, coach and guy is. Um, called me from the beach in on in Hawaii to do <laughs> to do this book interview. And just um, paid attention to so much. Like I, I really wanted to talk to him in particular. Mm -hmm. Never been a head coach before. Level. 
then do what they did with the Falcons. Uh, I paid attention to all these things and that's that's what I found really fascinating was it wasn't oblivious to him. Also trying to navigate an environment that he'd never been in before, a hedging role, the first time in the NFL. So, like, as soon as he said that, that quote, uh, might just be another 10 minutes, but to the other person, it's the most important 10 minutes of their day. I highlighted it like I almost, you know, broke the page on my binder because I'm like circling it so much. I'm like that brilliant. And, uh, it's so true. And, and we, we so quickly overlook that because, you know, again, it's the person, right? Everyone's coming to you for help and you're trying to solve problems and you've got a training session right. and your, your wife's calling, you're telling you to come home for dinner and, and all these different things are swirling around. But when second, and slept all night because they're like, I've got to talk to the coach about this thing tomorrow and just take that anxiety out of the situation by just putting the phone down and, you know, kind of being of service and, and, and recognising that alts your power dynamic, that can more probably give it. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, obviously at that level and then even if we, to a similar degree, even, you know, an S&C staff or, or other performance staff or medical you know, when when those players come in, especially for certain players, injured players, younger players, you know that that time that they have with that practitioner is is really important. And then there's, and to your point, even for the practitioner, that coach, that strength coach, you know, that might be athlete number twelve that they've seen for the day. You know, for a head coach or any type of coach, it's tough. It's it's a challenge, isn't it, to to be able to maintain that level of energy and focus for the whole day because everybody who sees that individual is you know that's a big moment in in, in their in their day right yeah yeah there's another great example that darren burgess gave me when he was at arsenal he's talking about arsene wenger and, and how no one would go into his office there was essentially a lineup office there was essentially a lineup outside his office to talk to him because no one wanted to go and interrupt him and so you know berger kind of just like walks in and asks his question and walks out and he's like what are you guys doing and i i talk about that in the book but it's it's not it's not anything other than just that that power dynamic that we were talking about and and understanding that you're just intimidating right just because of the title and so even when you're someone like Arsene Wenger who you know, has been at Arsenal or was at Arsenal for 20 years and, and was so respected and so loved and, and had so many, it was like a family atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And so like when you think about that, you're like, of course, if you're a family, you'd walk in and, and say your thing to the coach. Still, there was this atmosphere that no one wanted to disturb him. And that's just the power dynamic at play. Mm -hmm. And and so being conscious of that and conscious of your impact, the impact of your title on other people and the impact of your power on other people is um, is critical because the thing to remember on the other side as well is that people bring their own interpretations of power to work with them. So if they come from a different culture that has a different power dynamic, they bring that with them to, to your environment. If someone has, um, you know, a, a certain dynamic they grew up with, with their mother or father, they bring that with them. And so they, they then um, treat you in a way that is in, in line with their own understanding of how power dynamics work. 100%. So if, 
if you can uh, have empathy for that and, and kind of try to understand that and then understand that this isn't just head coaches, this is everyone. When the CEO walks onto the floor in a business, everyone sits up straighter and does their tie up a little bit, you know, and they articulate their words <laughs> a little bit clearer. Sure. We just do it because we know there's a power influence in the, in the building. Uh, there's just this natural reaction to it. And that and I, that's a good segue into this kind of the flip side of that, really, which is another uh, great line from from the book is that you know, this great paradox of coaching you, know, you write about is that it's both not about you and entirely about you. Um, could you unpack that a little bit for uh, for viewers and listeners? The great paradox of coaching, yeah. Uh, that's that's it in a nutshell is you have this dynamic where it's you know the progress of the organization the progress of the team the you know you're there to serve you know it's it's not about you it's about them it's about serving you know your players and making sure that everyone's taken care of and set up for success but then you can't just leave it at that because again, you you have this dynamic as the leader where you're actually creating yourself in your team. And so I think what what a lot of head coaches get wrong is that they don't understand both sides of that dynamic. So what I mean by that is your behavior, how you show up becomes how, how your team is going to act. And so, you know, it, it's so easy to sit here and go, it's not about me, you know, uh, it's, I'm, I'm all about my players, I'm this and I'm that. But then your, actual, your behavior doesn't line up to that either. So you're not creating what you're saying you're creating, this player-centric model that everyone wants to talk about now. Go and lock yourself in your office and close the door and no one will go in and talk to you. That's not a player-centric model. That's, and so that's what you're actually creating in your culture. So the point is that it's, it is a paradox and we need to be aware of it that any leader, not just head coaches, any leader is creating themselves. And so how you act, how you behave, how you speak to people is what they are going to go and do. And it's just, that's just contagion theory. Like this is a proven thing. Yeah. You become who you observe the most and who you observe the most in a sporting environment, head coach. And, and how does that, like when we look at, you know, basketball, Football. I mean, styles are changing over the years, but when I grew up, I mean, there's a lot of Bobby Knight yelling, screaming. You know, this is how we're going to motivate. We're going to, you know, this is like, <laughs> shut up and play. You know, get your ass on the bench. Like, and now we see, obviously, an, an evolution in terms of being able to better communicate with individuals. And to your point previously, you know, how people grew up, their culture, their environment, how they receive information. It, it's it's different for for everybody, and we're getting a better handle on that now from a coaching standpoint. From a you know, practitioner standpoint but when we look at you know i always think of a sport like american football where we still have that sort of very top-down military style you know we're going to do it this way you know when in, in, in researching the book and whatnot and in different sports like is that something that you know some of those differences versus you know what are the similarities across the board like can you speak to that a lot of differences and again those differences are born often out of competitive landscape of of the sport and then also some social 
inputs as well. And so you use, you, earlier you said military, and it's funny because I've had two conversations about this earlier around the impact that kind of military ideas of leadership, you know, post-World War II and kind of how that then flowed into society and is still being felt today, that, that traditional kind of top-down, you go and do this, I'm the boss kind of idea and not to say that's always a bad thing. I mean, maybe it is, but just to, you know, depending on the environment, right? Exactly. Yeah. And so there's context to everything, but that, mm -hmm. that as a blanket solution is, yeah. it, it is, is, you know, probably the wrong way to, to consider it. Um, yeah. Now you have this kind of new wave of coaches. Yeah. Potentially more worldly. They have different views on leadership. They lead differently. They, you know, in, gain enrollment and, and all these different types of things. The reason that I observe some haven't changed is because they haven't found someone to go through the wall first. That's one of my big kind of lessons from the book is a lot of people said to me that the NFL would change if someone saw success doing this. If someone went, if, if someone stopped watching film and went home and, and spent time with their wife and their kids, and they won, everyone would follow along. Got but some, until got some got some sleep, kept their health right. up, better better cognition, better decision making when it counts. Right. But because because no one has really used that as kind of a core philosophy, it's hard for someone else to go through the wall first. Like mm -hmm. even even your newer school guys, like a Sean McVeigh, like the the, the word is obviously hyper aware has all the kind of social skills in the world can talk all day but still is watching tape at you know 3 a.m yeah still running on five hours sleep right yeah and and he may be wired that way and and that's that's good for him i i think he's an amazing coach but even that kind of newer wave they're still pulled into the you have to watch this much tape and you have to be there until you have to be the last one out of the office and so mm. it hasn't given permission for others to be able to take care of their well-being it has happened in other sports like the afl is a is a great example where coach coach welfare and and um, kind of a letting go of power has really started to occur but yeah i mean there's there's impacts within the game themselves where, you know, there's expectations of how you act. And until, yeah, someone wins, <laughs> we're probably stuck with a lot of those things. Yeah. I mean, it becomes a, I guess for in any in industry and business as well, that just idea of FaceTime and, and everything else. And whether you're the performance staff working with a team and just having to log these longer hours just to be at the facility and, and, you know, to your point, sometimes that's, that needs to be done and that's beneficial. But other times that over the course of a 12 month year, you know, practitioners get run down, practitioners get tired, practitioners lack sleep, make poor decisions. They can't, they can't execute their skills to the best of their abilities because their own health is, is somewhat being compromised. And it's, you know, finding that line between, right, we're squeezing the lemon to get every, to get all that juice out. But at what point are we pushing too hard? And to your point, it's, it's, it's a challenging one, isn't it? When, no one else has gone through the wall with a different approach and it's, you're just going to, you know, for lack of a better term, you're going to look a little bit lazy, aren't you? If you're not, if you're not pushing as hard as the other teams and the other staffs, right? Yeah. Well, and, and so let's think about this for a second as well. How grateful should 
mindfulness, meditation, and that whole practice be for Phil Jackson? Because if if he doesn't have that success in, in 1993 or whatever it was, like mm. that gave permission for this whole wave to happen. It still could be a pseudoscience as far as the high-performance sporting world is concerned mm. if that doesn't become the case study that it becomes. And again, there was really slow adoption uh, the, the, you know, the science and everything obviously needed to, to continue to catch up. That wasn't the case study. It could still be an outsider to this whole conversation right now. Oh, yeah, 100%. And, you know, I always find it fascinating because, you know, these conferences, get-togethers, you know, the belief of the players and the staff is always this really hugely important thing, which we could call placebo, right? I mean, if just just believing that we're all doing this thing is such a huge and it's statistically significant ad advantage, but it's but then when we look at you know different evidence based, we'll call it air quotes tools. I mean, we're, we're we're a lot more in the gray zone with a lot of this than we than we are just simply you know everyone's practicing evidence based, and if all you're doing is waiting for the the study to come out to show you that this this technique or this nutritional strategy is going to win. I mean, that's the, the train's already left the station, right? That's what I love about, about coaching because it, it plays out in real time and you don't, you don't need it to work 999 times out of a thousand. You need it mm -hmm. to work once. And so it's, it's making that like, let, let's be honest here. Half of it is, is making shit up and like trying to find solutions in the time. I'm not talking about, you know, the, the, the work that goes in prior, but like in a game, half of it is like, I think this might be right for this, this, this one circumstance that we're in because we've never been in that situation before. Um, and so in that particular situation before, and so you, you're kind of making it up on the spot as much as we want to say we plan and all these different things. If we're having a real conversation here, where you, you, it's a best mm. guess, and 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 that's why I love it is because you're constantly testing. Okay, I think we, I think our team can do this. I think our team can execute this play. I think we can squeeze them a little bit here, and just get another mm. two points out of this half. And so you're always playing that like squeezing game, and you don't get the benefit of looking at the science as to whether you know this plot yeah, this type of play fast, has right? worked <laughs> right and, and that's what i mean the belief side of that i mean just you know with canada basketball just watching nick nurse work and obviously seeing him with the raptors and you know his ability to draw up plays at the right time but it's not just the fact that he's drawing up the play it's it's this belief in the fact that what he's going to draw up is going to work you know to your point and some of the points you make in the book, like he could drop whatever play it is, like just the fact that he's drawing it up in the way that he is, there's a belief that, hey, this is going to work out. We're going to, you know, we're going to get through this. And before we actually, I want to talk tactics here in a minute, but before, before we go there, circling back to the coaches with, you know, when we talk about outcomes and, you know, the Dan Quinn's who had success, but obviously didn't quite get over the hump or, you know, in the book, you talk about Hugh Jackman, the ex-coach of the Cleveland Browns, who was, you know, whatever his record was there, I mean, five and 30 some odd. And this idea of identity, right? We, we identify as athlete first, practitioner first, doctor first, psychologist first. And as a football coach, if you're, you know, he identifies as a football coach first, 
But if you're losing all the time, you know, what are you? You know, you touch on that. Can you talk about that that idea of identity and then how where's that intersection between I'm a guy who coaches versus I am a I'm a I'm a coach number one and then family man and et cetera, et cetera. The chapter title is you're not a coach and the first little snippet is is you're a person who coaches and i think that really sums up my perspective on it and yeah there's quite a, a harrowing tale in there of of hugh jackson and coaches oakland does okay uh, i can't remember the circumstance why he left there but ends up at cleveland browns and yeah yeah i mean terrible record and and still haunts him to this day and sports illustrated did a a really confronting piece on him basically saying like he had by this because he identifies as a football coach first and his his personal circumstance and only he can can be the judge of, of what his identity is but it's it it seems as an industry that it's just gone too far that way that we've kind of lost this idea of humanity and who we are as people and human beings what's going to be written on our tombstones often is and this is this comes from the the jackson story he he says something like my win loss record's going to be written on my tombstone that was the that was the bit where i was like right and and is it and is that a good is that a life well lived if even if you are a successful coach and your win loss record is written on your tombstone like surely we need to have some sort of more well-rounded perspective on who we are as human beings for this to all work because we work in the people business and so surely our impact on on other human beings our family members our daughters our our wives our husbands surely that is what we should be aiming for and team and the people in our building rather than being you know feeling wronged because you've got a five and thirty six record as an nfl head coach don't get me wrong it would bug it would bug the shit out of me that i had lost yeah as a competitor it's it's natural isn't it but but to your point earlier i mean he's a head coach in the nfl like he's the point zero 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 one percent of coaches at the most elite level to obtain that position so from a perspective standpoint it's amazing how you can go from this like this is a horrific record i mean man you guys you're losing all the time to the fact that hey you're you're one of the best coaches in the in the country that's why you're a head coach in the NFL but he's exactly and here's the thing too is so the only people that would draw the conclusion that Hugh Jackson wasn't a good coach are people that don't fans. understand how coaching works and <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> fans every every other exactly so every other every other coach in the NFL who's you know worth their their weight in gold is sitting there being like this guy's a hella good coach man he walked into a bad circumstance like like it's a it's almost consensus that this guy can coach Mm. by the by the people by the by his peers Mm. and and this is what's really interesting is other coaches don't care how much people win or lose or anything that they look at the circumstance like yeah he lost he was set up to lose yeah the context is so so key in the whole story right and the other the other coaches know who can coach and who can't coach and they i tell you what they don't talk about people's win-loss records Mm. they talk about whether the the guy or girl can actually coach yeah (laughs) and that's clear to other coaches yeah 100 percent. i mean it's uh 
it makes me think of you know in the, in your book as well you you talk about some of the phrases and the words and the things in coaching that maybe need a bit of a rethink or that need to be challenged can you can you share a few of those a uh, few of those gems few of those phrases that I'm I know I heard a lot when I was was <laughs> growing up that are just become part of the lexicon that maybe need to be scrapped or upgraded yeah every word matters and and that <laughs> again it just kind of encapsulates exactly what we're talking about here is is really about thinking how we position things and not just deferring to yeah the old kind of terminology or any terminology in particular like really thinking through what is every word communicating and the the best one <laughs> that i found was and people probably have seen this is is a video that i saw on social media of a uh, a father teaching his son how to hit uh, baseball off a tee, and he, 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 he the kid hits the first one, no worries, and then he tees up another one, and he says, "Keep your eye on the ball. Keep your eye on the ball." He repeats it, and the kid kind of looks at him confused now, and then and then he he bends forward and he he puts his eye on top of the ball <laughs> that's sitting there on on top of the tee yeah. and you know so everyone it's you know everyone starts laughing and it's hilarious but the coaching lesson in it is absolutely brilliant it's supposed to be this cute little video but it, there's such a profound coaching lesson in it that keep your eye on the ball makes no sense mm. and 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 the kid is the one that has to point it out to us is it like a two-year-old? It's, it's a, a brilliant. It's a brilliant video because yeah, just just seeing somebody do that to a baseball, and the kids obviously being genuine, right? Like if this was a <laughs> yeah. teenager, that he, you know, uh, the kids being genuine, and he, he puts his he puts his face right on the ball, and I mean, it's it's brilliant to your point. I mean, it just it just uh, you know, picture speaks a thousand words. It's like what what kind of stupid, you know, tip is this? Yeah. And we all have them in our lives. We have them in our sports. Things that we say that you know, were, were just part of the popular lexicon. And, and the point is that we we need to just think about the power of those words because it, it you know, shape how we perceive the world and how we perceive what we're doing. And so it becomes really important where now we live in a globalised society where the same things don't make, mean to different people. Yeah. We've literally merged the entire world in the last 20 or 30 years and we're still using the same terminology and it just doesn't have the same impact. Uh, we'll bring all their own language profile to the table. Yeah, and I, I mean, to, to that point, even just our own self-talk, right? I mean, the, the way that we converse with ourselves and the things that we say to motivate and sport, you know, classically, is a lot of negative self-talk pushing yourself down so that you can get back and rise up to the challenge. But it's that internal monologue that keeps going on. I mean, it's amazing how even the best athletes as they go up who don't face those kind of challenges, maybe until they reach the most elite level, the professional level. And now all of a sudden there's doubt and there's negative self-talk and it's can be crippling, mm. you know, because those, those skills haven't been, you know, developed over time. And to the point of what we're saying, words matter and, and, I think that's an area that's really developed over the last five or 10 years. And when we look at coaching, right, in terms of that communication. Yeah, that's that's really what I was getting to with with this chapter was, you know, we need to mm. rethink how we think about communication. And so I've, I've rethought it and kind of repositioned it a little bit. And the fact that look, 
and, and behavior aren't considered ways of communicating is baffling to me. And I understand why I understand the academic side of it. Um, but the fact that we essentially, particularly with self-talk, we strip it out and put it in psychology. And then we keep mm. verbal written over here as communication means that there's, there's already a distance between the two. Um, but we, we need to consider self-talk as a communication skill so that we can practice it. So just like every other mm. communication skill that we have, and it's, it's a huge missing one. And then the other one is behavior as a way of communicating. Like your actions are the, the biggest embodiment of that self-talk. So you also can't exclude them from the conversation as well. So I get academia, I get all, I get all this kind of separations that we need to make on that front, but in practice, we have to include them in there so we can practice them. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's like, it's got to merge together to be able to, to be able to put these things into play in real scenarios, isn't it? Because we, we dissect them into their silos to, to examine them and to test the theories and to, to develop the science, but we can kind of get stuck in, in, well, that person does that and that person does this and, but on the pitch or, you know, whether it's a coach or the player, all these things are happening simultaneously. There's no, it is amazing to see that there are obviously a lot of great programs where those barriers are being, you know, broken down, but there's, it's still, there's still a lot where they're, they're very obviously still there. Right? Yeah. And huge for leaders too. And to your point earlier, the, the self-talk one and finding ways to be kinder to yourself as a leader and, and even showing yourself some self-love, that's been the biggest change in my coaching is my ability to stop being harsh on myself and having that critical voice constantly to your point. It was, it was kind of ingrained in us. Like we, we kind of, we socialized ourselves into that and letting go of that and putting myself into a state of depletion just from my own self-talk has been huge for me. Yeah. And I mean, that's a fascinating one because even with my experience working with just different clients and in business settings, and no matter how high up the ladder you go, the negative self-talk, I mean, everyone's always looking up higher to where they want to get to. So the negative self-talk doesn't really change much or can get worse <laughs> as you go up. And it's like, wait a minute, you're the person who's accomplished all this. Why? You know, but it can get pretty vicious. And so, yeah, to your point, it's definitely a skill we all need to develop. And Cody, I want to make sure I, re I respect your time here, man. When we, this latest book that you've written, you know, when you've over the course of writing it, you know, what, what are, what have you noticed about your own coaching or whatnot that has shifted along with, with, you know, the, the learnings and the writings that you've, you've, you've developed for the book. Yeah. So the book was a COVID baby and actually half written another book and then COVID happened. And opportunistically I started calling around my coaching friends just to check in on them because it was pretty clear that everyone was a little bit frazzled and they were also isolated and trying to find their way, um, but also trying to share lessons. And, and the thing that just kept coming up was that with the extra time to kind of sit and reflect is uh, yeah, like a lot of people were, were really lost and they'd mm. kind of been winging it and, and the next season came. So it made this perfect excuse to not take care of themselves and not change their behavior and back on the treadmill, back get on the treadmill as soon, like as soon as the Super Bowl's over, it's get back in, you know, then there's draft and then, you know, yeah. straight after draft is rookie camp. And then, and so it, it just creates 
this uh, suction that took everyone in the world having to stop <laughs> global pandemic and sit out in the backyard on their own and stare up into the blue sky for us to realize that something needed to change. And so that's what <laughs> that's that was the kind of the birth of the book was this isn't my idea. This was coaches coming to me saying, I I've realized I need some help with this. I need help. I don't need I don't need someone to tell me how to coach know how to coach it's me who needs the help and so my biggest learning is that coaches have got to have coaches man makes and, sense and right we, we forget that on their plate and that they can receive coaching too and there's very few that have them uh, whether it's a cost thing i don't know it doesn't really make sense in pro sports because we pay hundreds of staff now to do all sorts of things surely the mm. coach can have a, a right hand man or woman with them yeah, like there is a group of people that are just kind of lost in the world and no one's paying attention to them and they're on television every single day and they're just being overlooked. Someone needs to offer some some support. And so that that is what the book is, is my attempt at saying we need to pay attention to this before someone ends up in the ground and we all have to feel bad about it because we didn't do anything. <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, it's we look at health conditions and NBA coaches, NFL coaches. I mean, hypertension, cardiovascular events, pre-diabetes. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of things happening, and so fantastic book. It's it's tremendous. Whether you're a coach, as in a, a head coach or an assistant coach, but even if you're a practitioner, nutritionist, strength coach, doctor, medical. I mean, we talked before about this idea of you know with managing a chronic condition or helping somebody achieve a goal is coaching, and yet we don't. Uh, in these other sort of medical fields, there's no coaching section, right? It's just, uh, and so I think there's a lot of phenomenal parallels in the book that that really can help people become better practitioners. So, you know, thanks for writing the book, fantastic. You know, where can people pick up the book? Where can people keep connected with all the great work that you do? Yeah, Mark, just one last point on that is, uh, yeah, I've had, I've had teachers and CEOs and, and people reach out to me and say, I, I saw myself in this book. So it's, it is written through the lens of head coaches, definitely. And it's, you know, team sport head coaches at the elite level, but yeah, already in the first couple of weeks of it being out, I've had people from other disciplines reach out and say, this is the same, but, but within mm. my world. And so that's really, oh. that's really cool to it's nice, just, right? Yeah. And so to your point is it doesn't need to be about sport necessarily. I think the lessons there and they're, they're, quite, they're quite universal. Yeah. Uh, so the book's only available on Amazon, Amazon all around the world. So you can grab it from <laughs> Most there. Most people get their books on Amazon. So yeah. That's why. And they, like, they, uh, they mail it straight to you. You don't even need to go to the store. Yeah. Um, and then odyroyal.com is my centralized website it's got my podcast got my books are on there or links to my social media very active on twitter and very easy to find with a name like cody royal there aren't too many of us floating around same nice. as you mate like nice. uh, that, there's nice. not too many mark bubs floating around yeah, you taking your and think of the hands. funny last name man you're good to go <laughs> <laughs> awesome man well listen again appreciate you coming on fantastic book if Anybody listening in is definitely one that's going to be on the shelf because uh, no matter what discipline you're in, it's going to make you a better practitioner. Um, and, and to your point, even learn a little bit more about yourself so you can take care of yourself a little bit better so you can become uh, better at whatever discipline or job that you have. So.
appreciate the time, Cody, and uh, we'll have to get you back on again soon. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. And we'll we'll do the the away leg as well. I'll have you on mine. Looking forward to that chat. <laughs> nice, I'll, nice. I'll put you on the grill. There we go, man. All right, good stuff. Listen, appreciate it. Thanks, mate. Thank you for listening to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. You can find the full video interviews on YouTube at the Performance Nutrition Podcast channel. You'll also find clips of this and past PNP episodes. A quick reminder, the Football Performance Nutrition course by Athlete Evolution is enrolling students until April 2nd. So if you'd like to upskill your football performance nutrition, learn from the best of the best, you can use the promo code FPN50 to save $50 off the cost of enrollment. Finally, if you enjoyed the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe, all that good stuff. Thank you, and see you next time. The Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcasts.